0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. My usual co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson, is not here this week. She's currently in New York talking about aliens. But never fear, I've got a new co-pilot, or I guess that's the wrong vehicle. I guess I should say a new fellow driver in Chris Williams. He's going to be on the show this week to help me talk about the new Fast and the Furious movie, Fast 10 and also sort through its tenuous connection to my watchlist pick for this week, Out of the Past from 1947. It should be a good conversation, so join us on this episode of Seeing and Believing.
1: Let's start back at the beginning, shall we? Los Angeles, 2001. Humble roots, local kids, street racers who became hijackers. Graduated to high-speed smuggling. Mobile jailbreaks. Train robbers. If it could be done in a car, they did it. If it violates the laws of God and gravity, they did it twice. But the days where one man behind the wheel of a car can make a difference are over. It's time to prepare for what's coming. You might want to buckle up.
0: Yes, we're here on episode three eighty two of Seeing and Believing, the the family edition of of the podcast. Listeners, of course, we are going to be talking about that franchise that is about cars, but most, but more importantly, family. With our review of Fast Ten here. Uh, we're also going to be talking about a uh, little noir that I like a lot, 1947's Out of the Past, for our list segment. But maybe most exciting is the fact that I've got a guest with me here in the virtual recording booth this week. Sarah is, of course, gallivanting around New York City, uh, being... Uh, participant in a Q&A at the IFC Center and doing all sorts of really great stuff. So can't wait to hear how that's going. But in the meantime, I've got Chris Williams here with me. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, hey, thank you for inviting me to your uh, backyard barbecue. I've got my Corona (laughs) ready to go, and I am ready to talk some family
0: here, Kevin. That sounds great. Me as well. Uh, For any listeners who uh, may not be familiar with Chris, he's been on the podcast a couple times before, and he's a regular fixture with our year-end episodes as well. But Chris uh, kind of has a lot of irons in the fire. You're the co-host of another podcast of your own, We're Watching Here. You are the writer for the Criticism newsletter over on Substack, and you also write here and there for the Cinema Nerds website. So you got a lot going on, Chris. I'm glad you were able to make time for for seeing and believing.
1: Well, you know, I always try and show up and talk the masterpieces. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if Vin Diesel's in the picture, I've got to be there. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I do. I did get very excited about the thought of having you on to help me sort through this uh, latest entry in the Fast and the Furious franchise, because uh, it's a humdinger, which is definitely not something that uh, Dom Toretto would say. <laughs> That's probably not in his lexicon, but it's uh, it's got a lot going on for sure. So I'm glad to have you on board. Um, this latest one is called Fast 10. It is the 10th film in the Fast and Furious franchise, here's the film's official synopsis. Over many missions and against impossible odds, Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, and his family have outsmarted, outnerved, and outdriven every foe in their path. Now they confront the most lethal opponent they've ever faced, a terrifying threat emerging from the shadows of the past, who's fueled by blood revenge, and who is determined to shatter this family and destroy everything and everyone that Dominic loves forever. So Chris, you've got a little bit more proficiency in the world of the Fast and the Furious than I do, like I already mentioned. I'm going to come clean here and uh, admit that I've seen generously 1.5 Fast and the Furious movies, with the only one I've seen from beginning to end in the theater being the entry just before this one, 2021's F9. So you know that being the case, I'm very curious to cede a little bit of ground to you and get your thoughts on this new installment since in many ways it's specifically targeted at the fans who know and love Dom and his crew. I guess, well, I guess I should say family. <laughs> so maybe to get our conversation started, you can uh, lend your expertise to to us by telling me how well you think Fast 10 fares at delivering the franchise goods while still building out this world in new and interesting ways.
1: Yeah, sure. And I got to say, I don't know how you understood a second of this movie (laughs) because this movie, I I mean, there are so many callbacks to the previous nine movies and so many Easter eggs that like it makes a Marvel movie look Um, self-contained. This is a movie that basically the plot is just, a delivery system to get the characters to Easter eggs from previous movies. Um, so I don't know how anyone who hasn't sat down, taken notes and watched all nine movies understood five seconds of this because <laughs> I've seen them all. And I was told, oh, who's that guy? Oh, that's right. I thought he was dead. No, he came back two movies ago. Um, yeah. I, and really that's kind of, the weird appeal of this series this is the weirdest franchise i think i have ever loved um <laughs> i was there opening day 22 years ago when the fast and the furious came out um I, i've been watching these wow since they came out um which is weird because the first four movies range from okay to terrible and like many a tv series these days it doesn't really get good until the fifth entry um (laughs) but to understand what's going on you have to have seen all of them because this is a franchise that is constantly doubling back on itself bringing back characters from previous installments there are later movies that take place before previous movies um it's a weird little franchise and the the thing you can't ding these for is being stupid because that's part of the appeal. These are very over the top soap opera movies that, that work best when there's a nice combination of, um, I, I call it lunk headed sincerity over the top action and a little bit of humor. Um, and if we want to jump right into Fast 10, I actually think this is, that for me, this was one of the more disappointing ones in the franchise. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, there is. I, I mean, it, it's interesting that this movie opens up with a flashback to the end of Fast 5, which I think is the best in the series and maybe one of the best blockbusters of the last 20 years. It's really good. Yeah. Um, And it calls back to the series high point and then seems to forget every lesson from this movie, from that movie. Um, I'm trying to think of the best place to start here Uh, (laughs) because I I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the last few days since I saw this. What is the difference between a good Fast and the Furious movie and a bad Fast and the Furious movie? Um, Because it's a fine line, because like I said, you can't ding them for being stupid because that's kind of what they do. And I think what I walked away with was the best movies in this franchise tend to work best when there is a heist or a job that brings the team together to, uh, to focus on. And it centers the plot a little bit, and it distracts you from kind of the -the over-the-top absurdity. There's something that you can hold on to there. And as crazy as things get, it always comes back to that heist mentality of there is a team that works well together. They're going to get a job done. It may be crazy, but it's coherent. Um, And then there's this mixture of over-the-top action sequences that tend to work really well if they involve practical effects uh, and sincerity that understands how absurd this is but has genuine affection for the characters and humor that understands how absurd everything is without winking too much. And I walked away realizing it's actually a very difficult balance to get right, to get something so stupid to work so well, it is a tough balance. And I think the biggest problem with Fast 10 is it has a script that is a sprawling mess from the start. Um, There really isn't a single heist that they're trying to pull off, a single job that they're trying to pull off. It's a revenge story. It brings someone back um, from the past who... This is the first we've heard of them. Uh, It's Dante played by Jason Momoa, who is the son of a bad guy from a previous film. And the story is basically him trying to make Dominic Toretto and his crew suffer. And as a result, the plot finds ways to separate the whole team for most of the movie. There are about six different stories being told throughout the two and a half hours that aren't just different plot threads but seem to exist in totally different genres. Um, And it's a big sprawling mess where you can't help but realize this doesn't make sense. It kind of sputters around. Um, There are plot threads here where it is the typical Fast and the Furious superhero movie. Um, There's the spy thriller, but then there's John Cena in a family road trip adventure with a little kid for half the movie. And then Michelle Rodriguez in a totally different movie with Charlize Theron that seems to be in a sci-fi prison out of X-Men. Uh, and then Jason Momoa, who we might have to dedicate 10 minutes to doing whatever the heck he's doing that I love, but that feels at right angles to everything else. So, that's a long way of saying this is a messy movie even by Fast and Furious standards.
0: I mean, it, it, it's interesting that that you, you found it to be one of the most disappointing ones because admittedly, you know, like I said, I don't have a whole lot to compare it to cuz I haven't dug as deep into the franchise as you have, partly because I just I think the the biggest weakness of the franchise is just Vin Diesel being at the center of things is just it's hard for me to get excited about a franchise with with him at the center of it just because he's he's by far the least interesting actor on screen no matter who else is on screen with him and it's you know it's just it's hard to, when things kind of really start to revolve around him i don't know at what point in the franchise he kind of became the big focal point but it's it's a big reason why i've not gotten deeper into the the mythology of the whole franchise that said coming in at the end, even though there are a lot of references and in jokes flying around in this movie, I found myself having a much better time with it than I did with, with F nine. And like you, I'm kind of trying to puzzle out why that is. And I think part of it is that it's got a great secret weapon in Jason Momoa. And I don't know, maybe we can start talking about him for 10 minutes here because I love what he's doing in this movie. Uh, and he, I think what he reminds me the most of is uh, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Just um, the way that Ledger played this very, you know, very dark, edgy character. And yet there was this, this little live wire of humor and almost camp running throughout the, the, the performance that kind of, even when things start you know, really ratcheting up with the tension and, uh, you know, the the darkness of what the Joker is actually planning is kind of, you know, kind of overwhelming. The, the humor kind of cuts that a little bit and keeps it still feeling like a blockbuster rather than a deathly serious slog. And I think Momoa is kind of doing something similar where his Dante is just, uh, flamboyant is probably a really good word to describe him. He's just all over the place. He's, he's kind of, at one point he, he runs to a car to jump into, you know, chase Dom Toretto somewhere. And Momoa does this little like, uh, like fey leap or like lip, he jumps <laughs> over something in his way and he like clicks his heels. And I don't know if that was his choice or the. Director's choice, but I love it and I wanted more of it. And I think that that for me is what really, in the in the same way that Ledger is the most memorable part by far of The Dark Knight, Momoa is the most memorable part by far of this film. And uh, I think does a lot to make the kind of the more po faced soap opera elements of, of it kind of go down a little bit easier where having not seen very many films in, in the franchise, I'm not super invested in these, you know, these core group of characters, but I am really interested in watching their, their very serious macho-ness bounce off of Momoa's very colorful bad guy. And I don't know. I, I, even though by the end of the film, I kind of don't know where this is all going. I, I think it kind of runs out of road at the end. To you know, use a uh, an appropriate pun, but I think that up until we do get to that end, Momoa kind of carries the whole thing on his back. And I don't know. I, I enjoyed that part of the movie a lot, and that went a long way towards saving it for me.
1: I 100% agree. Uh, I even had the Heath Ledger thought um, several times in the movie. I, what I loved about Momoa, particularly having seen every movie in this franchise, is this is a series that has been fronted by Vin Diesel from the very start. Uh, so he was there 20 years ago at the center of this. Um, Vin Diesel, Dwayne Johnson, uh, John Cena. It's It's this very... Quiet, growly, old school masculinity that has fronted these films for 20 years. And then Jason Momoa comes in in this 10th entry, and it's something the franchise has never done before, which made the energy shoot up every time he's on the screen. I mean, he at one point is wearing a pink bathrobe. He has floppy hair. He's blowing raspberries. (laughs) He doesn't like, (laughs) Um, I I mean, it's, it's so silly and he leans into the flamboyance of it. I think that that's a great word for that. Um, But there is an edge to him too. There is a sequence where there's no way I can describe this without sounding like I've gone off the deep end, but he is sitting in a pink bathrobe, painting the nails and chatting to two corpses. <laughs> and it is somehow bizarre and silly and yet also kind of disturbing. Um, and, and and it's just it's something I've never seen this franchise do. And I agree he he shoots the energy up to this movie every time he's on screen, which is very helpful because everyone who's been around since the beginning really feels like they're on autopilot. I mean, Vin Diesel has been good in these, but he has two facial expressions here. Um and and basically just growls platitudes about fatherhood for half the movie.
0: Yeah, um, I I feel like uh part part of the, the issue is that I feel like a lot of the a lot of the central cast, it feels almost as if they're afraid of doing anything that would make them look look silly or weak or or anything less than the most, you know the most the edgiest, most butt kicking hero you can imagine. that that extends not just to the male cast members, but also the female cast members. It's just everybody ha- is is seemingly in this contest with each other to see who can be the hardest, who can, you know, shrug off the the most physical punishment, who can dish out the most physical punishment. And it's kind of like everybody's in this race to the top. And so when Momoa, as you said, kind of runs at a complete right angle to all that, where he isn't afraid as a performer to look a little silly and to take some big acting risks. And I think that's kind of the shot in the arm that at least for me, not being a a true believer in the franchise as a whole, that's kind of the shot in the arm the the franchise needs to to make me kind of sit down and buy in a little bit more than I would otherwise.
1: Yeah, and as someone who's seen all these, there's definitely a feeling... Uh, Michelle Rodriguez, who has also died in these movies and come back. Um, she She's left with very little to do. And I'm just reminded a few months ago, she was in Dungeons and Dragons and was so much fun in that and so energetic in that one. Um, the usual comic relief of Tyrese Gibson and Ludacris feels very strained and obligatory here. Um, there was a big deal made in the last film that they brought Sung Kang back as Han, who has died twice in this series and come back <laughs> to life. Um, not, it, it was twice. It was the same death just shown in two different movies. But um, he he's basically left with nothing to do here except eat pot brownies with Pete Davidson and get into an obligatory fight with Jason Statham. So I, I you feel like, all the, uh, the old guard is kind of slowing down and just going through the motions. And then Momoa comes in and just, he's a live wire through it. Um, but Kevin, do you also realize this movie has four Oscar winning actresses in it?
0: I, yeah, Oh yeah, you're right there. They, you've got Helen Mirren in there. You've got Charlize Theron in there. Uh, gosh, uh, I'm blanking on who, who the other two are. Uh,
1: well, Helen Mirren is making her third appearance in this. <laughs> The saga, at least. Charlize Theron is also this is like her third movie, and then Rita Moreno shows up for the first time as oh yes, his Dom's grandma, and Brie Larson it, it also shows up. Uh, she is the daughter of Kurt Russell's character from a few movies back. And I will say the whenever they showed up, there was also this other energy that I liked. And you know, with Helen Mirren, you get it for one scene. Rita Moreno, you get it for one scene. Um, but there is a there's kind of a playful energy uh, Brie Larson brought that I liked. She can handle the action sequence as well. I've really liked Charlize Theron in these movies, even though plot wise she doesn't get a ton to do, but there's an attitude to her that that's a lot of fun. Um, So there were elements I did like about it, Um, but I I do think it's telling that the things I'm focusing most on that I liked are not the action sequences, which are usually the draws for the Fast and Furious movies.
0: And that's, that's interesting to me as well because uh, you know, I, I think that there are some, there are a lot of action sequences that I had a lot of fun with in this film. I think probably the highlight, uh for me was, uh, an early sequence set in the streets of Rome where they're basically playing the video game rocket league, except in real life with real cars. And I, I enjoyed that. Quite a bit uh, just for how, again, how ridiculous it was and how it kind of because, you know, you've got this giant uh, spherical, uh, you know, low scale warhead rolling through the streets of Rome, crushing everything in its path. And it's going to create a crater of the Vatican like that's just that's so ridiculously over the top that um, I think it's a good kind of setting the tone for the rest of the the movie so that even if you aren't don't know you know who's who and how many times different characters have died over the course of the franchise like me you can still kind of it's it's ridiculous and, and it kind of does encourage you to get on the wavelength of the film where it just kind of just sit back and watch the the chaos unfold um and I think as the Film goes on, and it, this the action sequences rely a little bit more on um, CGI, sleight of hand. There's, <laughs> there's, there's literally one one moment where the the camera kind of you know comes free, and pretty much everything physical in the frame disappears, and is replaced by a CGI trip along Vin Diesel's bicep through his ignition and into the car's engine. Which is, you know, props it to the movie is a very creative journey to take the viewer on, but it kind of because it does rely so heavily on this digital special effects uh, sleight of hand. I don't feel like it. It has the same sort of. Metal crunching immediacy that the better action sequences do. <laughs> What's funny about that is that's
1: something they were doing way back in the first entry. was the journey through the car um, when he hits the nos? Um, no, I, I think there's some action sequences that are fun. I think that Rome sequence is a lot of fun in places, and there are moments of that where I was like, okay, yeah, this is what I come to Fast and Furious for. I mean, they're basically playing pinball with a neutron bomb. <laughs> in the streets of Rome, and you're like, yeah, this is a Fast and the Furious movie. There's also an action sequence near the end with a cannon car and helicopters that I'm like, okay, this is what I come here for. Um, but I think something holds me back from totally embracing them because I just I don't think Louis Leterrier, the director, has the same skill that someone like Justin Lin had with these movies, um, where he understood the importance of whenever possible have real cars smashing into real cars doing the real stunts. Um, I I think there is a lot of computer generated trickery. There's also a lot of really quick edits that just robs it of a bit of the tactileness. And maybe I'm just spoiled because I saw John Wick chapter four a few months ago, which reminded me, Oh, when you do an action sequence, there should be long takes. They should be practical whenever possible. And maybe it's just me. You know, maybe I'm getting old. Maybe I'm not loving the Fast and Furious as much <laughs> as I, as much as I did. But it, it just kind of held me back. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think in its best moments, it does hit what I'm looking for. I've just seen so many films in this franchise do that even better.
0: Hmm. That's that's fair, I suppose. And I do think that you know the, the action sequences are. They they do get by a lot on on just the sheer panache of you know how how outlandish they're going to get um, and that does it does seem like it's leaning on that a little bit um, but we can maybe veer away from talking about the the action sequences because there I wanted to zero in on something else that you brought up in in what you said right at the top of this segment which was you you mentioned that the Fast and the Furious movies are kind of like Soap operas, in a way, and I think that's a really interesting take because I think it's very true. In that, uh, soap opera is not; it doesn't have a whole lot of winking at the audience, right? Like it's right. it, it you you don't when when you tune into a soap opera, it it doesn't have any meta humor. It doesn't have anything but the deepest conviction that whatever ridiculous relationship drama is happening in a in a particular scene it has to treat it with the utmost sincerity. Um, and that's something that is kind of a watchword for Fast and Furious as well. And it's paired in this new installment with a big emphasis on faith, or at least the word faith. I, I don't think that the movie really has any interest in faith as an actual thing. It's more of just a concept to lend a little bit more gravitas to these characters' journeys but Dom Toretto uh, throughout the film he's got in his possession this uh this cross pendant that mm-hmm. that's given to him um and that kind of is stands in for a conviction that he either has or is seeking to find or is trying to encourage other characters to have at various points throughout the film and i wanted to get your thoughts on how well, like, how, how did that work for you? Did I think, I mean, I kind of tipped my hand here and kind of mentioned that I think it it feels like it's a little bit surface level. But I'm curious if there might be something that I'm missing since, after all, I have seen so few other installments. <laughs>
1: um No, I, I you know, I, what's funny is I was thinking about this earlier today because I knew we'd be talking about this. And I was like, hey, you know, they did mention Faith a lot in this movie, What's that about? Um, because that's not really been a hallmark. Um, I mean, this is a series where they pray before their <coughs> barbecues, but uh and and Vin Diesel's character has wore that cross the entire franchise. but I was like, they they bring it up a lot to make you think they there's a point to it. But I was trying to think, what are they having faith in? And the only thing I could think of was, that Dominic Toretto can drive faster than a fireball. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like that's really, I I mean, it never really, it is a surface level thing. Um, And and it's, you know, I I think it's tossed in there alongside the family element, which um, I don't know that they do a ton there, except there's a lot of talk about fatherhood. Dom's a father now, Um, but I I think it, it is all very surface level and, it sounds resonant, um, but I don't think there's anything deeper in that.
0: Do, I mean, do you think? Do you think there's a qualitative difference between the faith talk in this film and the family talk in 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 this film and in previous ones? Like, family is sort of it's almost the the joke of the franchise at this point that you know Dom and his crew, uh, whether they're related by blood or marriage or they're just buddies, they consider themselves a family, and that's kind of something that. If there's one thing that the film really treats with, you know, that's sacrosanct, it's the concept of family. Um, so, do you see a difference between family in the the capital F sense and faith in the capital F sense in in the way it's it's portrayed in this movie? Because it feels like they're one and the same. But I just it, it I, I wonder if there's some sort of numinous something that I'm missing. <laughs> In the, in the world of, you know, Vin Diesel driving cars real good.
1: I I think in this movie, you're not missing anything. I think it's all very surface level here. I do think earlier in the series, the family element was really kind of what set it apart. I mean, this is a series that basically started with a movie that was kind of a point break knockoff where it was a cop, um, you know, infiltrating this gang of street racers and trying to figure out where his loyalties lied and and finding that, oh, this was a family. I mean, he, you know, Paul Walker's character marries Dominic Toretto's sister and there are children born to them, you know, in future films. And and that element of family was actually strongly resonant, which was kind of what set this apart. It actually was a driving force of uh, these people will do anything for each other. They will sacrifice themselves for each other. Um I, I think in the last few films, it's become kind of an in-joke that, well, we'll just toss the word family into the script about a hundred times. <laughs> and, you know we're doing what we're supposed to do to the point where it's almost self-parody now. Um, and
0: to be fair, the you know the movie this Fast Ten does specifically call that out in a we- It might be the first time the franchise has winked at itself. Uh, the, there's a, a minor antagonist who talks about how he hates barbecues, and it's weird how <laughs> Dom's crew, you know, talks about family so much that they're like a cult. So it is like. It's a level of self-awareness that I feel like is not typical for the franchise, but also, I, I don't know, it, it's difficult to know how seriously I'm supposed to take this stuff and how how much of it is just sort of what the equivalent of shooting guns in an action scene where it's you know, it's meant there to provide some sort of thematic pyrotechnics rather than uh, anything to actually chew on. but I, I don't know. Maybe, again, maybe I'm just missing something.
1: I think you're probably hinting at a lot of why this one didn't work for me. Um, is th- as crazy as things got in the best of the series, there was always that dynamic and affection between the characters where it carried me through the craziest because I I was invested in these characters. I liked the relationships they had, and the heart of the series felt actually pretty solid. And I think this movie, I don't buy any of that. I feel like it's going through the motions. The characters are trotting out the same old dynamics that they've played for the last few films. And it it just all feels very obligatory by this point. And I, I don't quite know why this one doesn't work for me and the other ones do. Um, aside from the fact that I think this script is a mess that just... Uh, didn't make time to invest in that other than the very surface level relationships they have.
0: Well, I I do. It's interesting because the villain kind of in the, in, you know, in kind of a grand tradition of a lot of sort of comic book villains is a dark mirror of, of Dom where um, the, the whole revenge plot turns on the fact that Dom and his crew, you know, killed this crime boss way like five movies ago. And now the crime boss's son is back. And he the reason he's so single-mindedly bent on revenge is because family is important to him too, and instead of it driving him to create sort of this community, I guess if you can call it around uh, that, that, Vin Diesel's crew has um, he's he's let it bend him completely on uh, punishing the world, I guess as he as he puts it, and. I feel like a maybe a better film would have found a way to draw out that that parallelism a little bit more kind of in the same way that you know the Batman Joker dynamic works where they both kind of they're two sides of a similar coin and um I I but if if it did that maybe that would just that that would just go against the whole kind of gearhead ethos of the entire franchise. I don't know how they could have done it in this film while still leaving open the door for future installments, which is a thing. Um, oh, yeah. Is explicitly <laughs> hinted at. Um, but it does seem like a very big missed opportunity.
1: And I don't know how much of it is. How far can you really go with people who save the world using cars. I mean, you're 10 entries in and I you know, they've done the uh the villain with a dark mirror image of Dom's crew before. Um Oh, okay. The, and the very last movie would seem to be as far as you could go in that it was Dom's literal brother who was the villain who in this movie and he was played by John Cena who in this movie Is playing the same character, but appears to have gotten a total personality (laughs) transplant because he is just the fun-loving uncle in this movie. And I I, I was kind of baffled, but I also kind of liked what John Cena was doing, so I rolled with it. Um, Yeah, I think 10 movies in, you might have tapped the well a little bit dry, um, which is why it was so frustrating even though I knew there was another movie coming, but when it hit those last five minutes and I'm like, Oh no, they're, they're going to pull a, uh, a Marvel here. Um, and my, my heart just started sinking. Cause I'm like, yeah. can I, can I, I, as much as I've loved these movies, can I do an 11th movie at this point? And I um, mean,
0: they've, they've even got like the, the mid credit stinger, right. Where the, the sequel is explicitly set up by like a two minute scene after the, the, above the line credits have rolled, which is just, yeah, it, it's it's not a great thing in general. You know, I, I'm kind of a Marvel grump, as listeners probably know, but it just, it doesn't even feel like this franchise could even come close to sustaining that level of attention. Jason Momoa is a lot of fun, but I don't know that his character is the kind of character who can really support being sort of a thanos level threat for dom and the gang
1: (laughs) no no but i mean i would not be surprised if somehow in the 11th movie now he's their best friend because that that seems (laughs) to be how that plays out but i will say i am such a sucker that that mid-credit sequence came on and i was like oh maybe i am interested in 11th movie now um so i'm part of the problem kevin
0: Well, I I don't know about about the problem, but uh, I am really glad to get your thoughts on this. I'm also really interested to know if there are any listeners out there who kind of share your affection for the Fast and the Furious franchise. Listeners, if you're out there, I crave your thoughts on on this movie. Uh, Like we've said, there's a lot going on, especially for the true fan. So if you have thoughts on this, let us know. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter over at CBelievePod, or if you're a letterboxed person, as Chris and I both are, then you can find us over at CBelievePod on Letterboxed as well. We're going to take a little bit of a break here and then come back with our review of Out of the Past in our Watchlist segment. Hey listeners, just want to take a couple of minutes for the conversation segment where we share what we've been hearing from all of you out there. Like I mentioned at the top of this episode, Sarah is in New York City and wasn't able to help me record reviews of the two movies. But she was on duty with the Twitter question on Sunday, and the one she posed to all of you out there was pretty simple. What is your favorite car chase? Pretty appropriate for a episode that focuses on the Fast and the Furious franchise. So we got some pretty good answers. Uh, Ron Sturry and Chris Williams uh, both uh, responded to share the French connection. Chris also had some other favorites to share, including Ronin, another good and pretty underseen one, and of course, the great Mad Max Fury Road. Um, We also heard from Neferbird who had just this to say, mine is more of a train chase uh, accompanied by a gif from the Wallace and Gromit adventure, The Wrong Trousers, which I love, love, love. Thanks so much for sharing that and reminding me that I need to rewatch that sometime. Really great little little film. Uh, We also heard from some of you about the episode last week proper about Guardians of the Galaxy and Akira. Uh, Bonk G wrote in and said that he appreciated the thoughts about both movies. He says, Akira is probably my favorite anime film ever. The resonant social commentary the excellent animation, and the perfect musical score. He also goes on to say that Guardians Volume 3 really worked for me, mostly due to the satisfying character arcs. Thanks for writing in, Bonkji. even though I was sad that I couldn't join you in your appreciation of that stuff. uh, It was really nice of you to write in and share your thoughts, and uh, I definitely do appreciate the character work that takes place in the Guardians films overall. Listeners, if you have any thoughts about last week's episode, this week's episode, or that Sunday question, there was lots of uh, great card chases left untapped. I've got a soft spot personally for the one in the Bourne Identity, uh, the police chase where Matt Damon actually has to stop and check a map. So I appreciate the little bit of uh, grounding in reality with that one there, but lots of good picks and interested to hear yours. So you can email, tweet us, or hit us up on Letterboxd with those. We'd love to hear from you. And now it's time for the watch list. This is, of course, the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then talk about it afterwards. So, Chris, I'm really excited to bring you into this because I think you might be the first guest host that I've uh, been on the show with where we get to do a watch list together. Uh, Sarah has had a couple of guest hosts on where it's just been her and the guest while I've been off duty but um, I'm looking forward to getting your thoughts on a film that I like quite a bit and uh, I don't know I'm, I'm I'm interested to see what a watchless segment will be like with with a with a different host in the in the co-host seat
1: yeah yeah sounds fun
0: so uh, we are going to be talking about out of the past this is a 1947 film noir directed by Jacques Tourneur. It stars Mitchum in the lead role as Jeff, who is introduced to the audience as a simple gas station owner, but who turns out to have, what else in a film noir, a dark past involving his former life as a private eye, a brutal kingpin, and the kingpin's girlfriend, whose motivations are murky to say the least. Mitchum's Jeff gets drawn back into his past life when the Kingpin looks him up and brings him in for one last job to pay a debt that he incurred earlier in his previous life. So, Chris, this is, in some ways, like a very sturdy, almost typical noir. It's got, you know, femme fatales. It's got a dark past. It's got, you know, the, the noir lighting with... Light slanting in through blinds. It's got Robert Mitchum, who is you know a great noir protagonist. Um, but I'm really curious to kind of uh, sidle our way into this discussion, I guess, by getting your thoughts on film noir as a whole. Kind of like what you think of the subgenre as a whole, and where Out of the Past fits for you, kind of in. Your overall picture of the film noir subgenre?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on film noir, but I, I enjoy it. Uh, you know, I, I've seen Double Indemnity, I, I've seen a lot of the Billy Wilder stuff. Um, a few years ago, my podcast co host and I did uh, Chinatown, which you know, I love, I, I've seen several times. Um, and at that time, too, Perry, my co-host, he pointed me toward uh, Paul Schrader's essay, Notes on Film Noir. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it kind of lays out the argument for what film noir is and what the basic uh, the basic tenets of it are. And it it was funny. I thought back to that watching out of the past because this is really – the classic film noir this, this is this is the movie that has that kind of constant sense of post-war fatalism the, this man who just doesn't fit into you know what we would consider mainstream society he and that captures that post-war feeling of the men who returned home from war. Um, it has like as you said there's the classic lighting, the deep shadows there is cigarette smoke, everywhere in this movie. Um, but mainly just that constant sense that this is not going to end well for anyone. Um, my, my wife always laughs at me because she, she says that I like movies with sad endings, which isn't always true. But I do enjoy a movie with a downer ending when it's appropriate. And film noir is kind of, you know, there aren't happy endings in film noir. And from the start, you understand that things are not going to end well for jeff but this might be the first one where i've the first film noir i've seen where the character seems aware from the start that things are not going to end well for him and he doesn't seem bothered he seems resigned to it and he he's always aware that things are going bad and that he's being played for a fool and he doesn't care because there is this girl he cannot stay away from even though she's going to be the death of him
0: yeah, the I, I think the fatalism is strong with this one for yeah. sure, and the the way that so when we first meet Jeff, I guess like on camera, the the first scene we we get him in, he's with kind of a, a new lady love in this small town where nobody knows his past. He's just the gas station owner. He's you know with a. Uh, uh innocent somewhat naive young blonde uh and there you know she's she's head over heels for him and you get the sense um in the writing and also in Mitchum's performance that he loves her but he also knows that that he doesn't there there's something in him that just knows that he can't have her that there's something what for what he's done and kind of the way he thinks of himself is a, an insuperable barrier right he can't get over the f- fact that he doesn't know how it's going to happen but something is going to destroy this idyllic life that he's tried to build for himself so when the kingpin's henchman shows up at his gas station and tells him that the the guy that he betrayed you know all those years ago wants another meeting. He doesn't even react with surprise or even even horror. He just kind of goes, "Oh, okay." And he's got that, you know, Mitchum face, the kind of the heavy-lidded eyes, the the very stony expression, and he just kind of walks along this path almost as if he knows it's been laid out in front of him and there's nothing he can do but walk it. He doesn't really struggle against his fate at, at all, which is Not all noir characters are like that, but that the spirit of that, I guess, feels very noir to me.
1: Yeah. What really struck me about this from the start is it did not. Begin the way I expect a noir to start. Um, you know, these are movies that are heavy on shadow and foreboding, and the first few scenes or first few shots of this movie are very idyllic countryside, gentle music uh, to the point where I was I had to hit pause and be like, "Did I pick the right movie here?" <laughs> um, and then there is that point of view shot on the back of the henchman's car as he speeds into town, and it really just conveys the sense that something is rocketing into town that is going to disrupt this. And it is Jeff's past. And that is a very visceral beginning to this movie. Um, But yeah, it, it really captures the fact that he is this man who he has the life. He probably assumes he's supposed to have, um, but he knows he can't keep it. He knows it's going to come crashing down, but there's also this sense that he's almost willing to go back because he knows that Kathy is going to be wherever he goes. And he's he's willing to go back to that danger because you can tell when he's relaying his past to Anne, the girl he's currently seeing, he still is enamored with Kathy. I don't know if I would use the word love, but he is drawn to her. Um, and I think the structure of this movie is so fascinating because... You could tell this story chronologically from um, Jeff's perspective and start with him being called to look for Kathy, who has shot the mob kingpin four times and is believed to have gone away with $40,000. He strikes up a relationship with her. It goes bad, and then he ends up in the small town. But I think by structuring it with – With him already living in that town and then having to tell the story through through voiceover, you get to understand just how much Kathy has gotten under his skin. Um, I I think Roger Ebert said it takes 40 minutes for him to tell this story. Um, and, And by the end of his flashback, you understand why he is so drawn to his character and why really now that she's been. Reintroduced to his life, he will never go back to Anne. He'll never be able to have that peaceful life.
0: Yeah, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with Jane Greer's performance. I think um, she's one of she's one of my favorite femme fatales in in, in film noir. Um, I mean, like you know Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. I don't know anyone's ever going to knock her off the throne, but Jane Greer, I like what she's doing. In this film, because when you first meet her, she kind of seems like she's the victim here, right? Like Kirk Douglas is, you know, he's got that, that way of speaking when he first gives uh, Jeff the job of tracking Kathy down. He's got that trademark Kirk Douglas way of speaking where he's almost, it almost seems like he's burying his teeth. With every word, like he's, he's a brutal man. And so when we first meet Kathy, she's dressed all in white and she, you know, Jane Greer has those enormous eyes and she, you, you expect, you know, if you haven't seen a a noir before, you, you expect her to be sort of like, yeah, she's the victim. And Jeff's job is going to be to help her escape the clutches of the man who, who drove her to flee. And Greer's performance, she she really plays into that. She does play up sort of the the, the the wounded damsel who who's just trying to get away from a bad deal and is and sees in Jeff kind of a man that she can she can hold on to. And what's interesting is the film goes on, when we see her again, we see that kind of facade. Slowly melt away bit by bit until the very end, where she is, you know, she's get delivering the classic femme fatale speech, like "I'm rotten, you're rotten, we deserve each other, let's run away together."
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, she's fantastic! Yeah, she's she she's fantastic because she is trying to trick Jeff, but I think Jeff, at least for most of the movie, especially once he comes back. He understands she's trying to trick him in many scenes, but there is also this sense that he he doesn't care. He's he's still drawn to her anyway, um, and, and you you understand why. I mean, Jane Greer is fantastic in the role, and I I loved watching her. Um, and, and at the end of the movie, she's the one pulling. Pulling one over on all the men in the movie, right? Hey, we, Kurt Russell, or God, Kurt Russell, uh, <laughs> Kirk Douglas, and uh, and Robert Mitchum, and yeah, no, she's fantastic.
0: Yeah, she, and and I think the kind of the turning point of the movie it's it's the very last scene of the flashback where uh, you know Jeff is is telling his story to Anne. As they, as he makes the drive to that fateful second meeting with the kingpin that he double-crossed, um, and the the final scene, you know, he's he gets into a fist fight with his former partner who has found Jeff and Kathy. He's going to rat them out to Kirk Douglas's character. And that scene is shot in the starkest possible, you know, film war lighting imaginable. you know, it's a, yeah. it's a dark room. It's lit by, I think, just you know, a lamp and maybe some firelight. And uh, when Kathy pulls the trigger, shoots Jeff's partner dead on the floor,, um, and is standing up against that wall, just the stark blacks and whites of that image. she, she looks frightening, whereas in you know up to that point she's just been an extremely beautiful woman that Jeff mm-hmm. has has fallen in with, and that cinematography uh, Nicholas Musaraka was the director of photography on this picture. I think that turn is maybe it's not the first time we've seen that trademark film noir kind of kind of lighting and framing. But it's it's the first time it's been that stark. And that's the turning point of the movie where we see the real Kathy. Jeff sees the real Kathy. And Jeff realizes that this, this uh, romance that he's been in is actually the, the end point of a dark past that he's going to carry with him throughout the rest of his life. And that he has to eventually confess to the sweet, innocent young woman uh, who he's taken up with in this small town? I think that there, there's something about that just feels that that feels quintessentially noir to me.
1: Yeah, and and, and the nice, sweet woman who he's fallen for, who is still even once she learns that he's been complicit in murders and cover-ups and, and and learns about his past, she's still you know standing by him and and telling him, "Well, there's I'm sure there's some good in this
0: woman," um, which is just heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it and it feels like you know. The, I think the first time I saw this film, I that perf, that character was a little bit of a problem for me. It, it felt a little bit like they were overplaying Anne's goodness too much. Like she was just kind of this, you know, this uh, to quote Edward G. Robinson from Double Indemnity. She's just a sweet little thing who doesn't know anything about anything, and it, it seemed like it was just a little too simplistic. But watching it here the second time, what I came away with was that's a key reason why Jeff kind of has this fatalistic sense that he can't hold on to the good thing he has with her because she's she believes in him utterly. She trusts him utterly, and he knows he doesn't deserve that trust. And that's kind of part of what drives him back to Kathy is he knows that... You know this this good woman who, you know, even though he's been, she knows he's been involved in murders, will still pledge to be with him. He's like, no, I'm not good for her. I, I don't deserve something like that. I deserve the the person who's kind of been with me in the darkness as well. And he goes back to Kathy. Then that just feels it feels quintessentially noir, not just because of the fatalism, but also just because there's a strong moralism underlying that as well, right? Like the, the idea that you don't just say you're sorry about a bad thing you did, and then just you're off scot-free in a, in a world of noir where there's not necessarily, (laughs) where Christ might not be entirely visible. That's all there is, is you did a bad thing and you're going to have to pay. And that's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's bracing to find something that bleak. Um, Especially if you know that there's an alternative (laughs) as a Christian.
1: Yeah, it it really is, and it does tap into the tap into this feeling that was probably around at that time. And this comes out in 1947. You have men who are returning home from war and trying to acclimate back into their lives and what they, you know, this picture of a peaceful well-adjusted American family that they probably have. And they're coming back from a war where they've seen and done things that have changed them or revealed sides of them that they uh, they didn't know existed before. And, and it kind of taps into that anxiety that's in a lot of noir that these people don't feel they... These men don't feel they belong in normal society, right? Like that they, they deserve this... Yeah, this life that is good and peaceful because there's something unsettled into them. And I I think it captures that anxiety really well. Um, I I, I don't really have anything else to say on that, but I think it captures (laughs) that anxiety very well.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the reason I picked this to pair with fast 10 was kind of, you know, the very simplistic thing that, you know, fast 10 there's a, a character from, from Dom's past um, who is going to exact a toll for the things that Dom has done in the past. Um, so that was kind of the the thematic galaxy brain link between Out of the Past and Fast 10. What I think it makes Out of the Past such uh, a much more compelling film than than Fast 10 in that area is, is the idea that whereas, you know, Vin Diesel's character in Fast 10, you know, he kind of has this dark past, but he's never really he's 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 still the hero. He's still unambiguously the good guy. Um, he still has confidence in himself that he is on the side of the angels, or at least whatever passes for angels in the world of the fast and the furious. Um, and out of the past, though, there is that that consciousness that you know the dark past is genuinely dark mm-hmm. and that uh it um it persists and it it's not something that's easily done away with simply by getting rid of one or two bad guys like it it's something much more pervasive than that and um that kind of i think is is much more engaging to think about, you know, even after the credits have rolled, just kind of thinking about why we are compelled by that vision and also why we <laughs> were disturbed by it and, and hope for more from from real life. Yeah,
1: I, it ends in such a bleak place. And I don't know how you handle spoilers in this section. Um, uh, it, it's, you know,
0: it's 1947. It's been out for okay over 70 years at this point. Spoilers are fair game.
1: It ends with a conversation between Anne and um, the, the deaf kid who works at the gas station. And it, it ends up in this bleak conversation where Anne wants to know, um, did Jeff run away with Kathy or was he going to come back to her? And the young man tells her, you know, it, yeah, he was going to run away with Kathy. And it's it's this idea where I, I don't know how much of that is truth like to the character or if it's just what she needs to know so that she can let go and move on with her life. But it is this idea that this very bleak notion that, yeah she has to let go of Jeff and see him as a bad person. So she can get on with her life with the guy she's supposed to be with in this town. Um, And that past can just be forgotten. He can be left because he's, he's been sullied in her mind by this dark past.
0: Yeah. That, that ending is, is interesting. Um, not just because of the, the question of, You know, is it, is it actually true? Like was, does, does the kid genuinely believe that Jeff was going back to be with Kathy or is the kid simply telling Anne what she, what she needs to hear sort of as a posthumous favor to Jeff or is it, is it genuinely like this is the, the film's perspective on Jeff that Jeff really was a bad person and was going to go back to Kathy and had no intention of ever coming back to Anne. I guess that ambiguity is really, uh, intriguing. And it's also telling that the, the person, the character that delivers that news to Anne is deaf and mute. So mm-hmm. there's no real definitive sense of, of just how much that information is meant to be explicit to the audience. And that's why I think we can keep coming back to this film is you kind of want to reach that end point and wonder if we're going to be any closer to a definitive answer this time. And I don't know this, this is my second time through and I don't know that I'm at a definitive answer yet, which is kind of why I like it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely one that sticks with you. One thing that was fascinating to me is I, I turned this on. uh, We had gone on a family trip. I had just made it home Sunday night and I knew we were going to talk about this. So I, I turned it on at like 10 o'clock after a long day of driving. And I'm like, I'll watch 45 minutes now. I'll watch the rest tomorrow. And I ended up sitting and being pulled into the whole thing because this this movie is so propulsive. But what's interesting is it's not so much the plot. Like I will say, I will confess in the last half of this movie, I don't understand half of what's going on with the affidavits (laughs) and the briefcases. But you are propelled along by this uh this relationship between Jeff and Kathy and this this kind of sense that he understands he's being pulled back into the past it's not going to end well for them but i can't get over the fact that he is so uh laconic is the word i keep coming back to on that he is just going where Kathy is and he's he's willing to do that because he's drawn to her
0: And that propels the story along. I was so invested in that. It's interesting that last act is really convoluted. Just the the way that you know Jeff has to get some some incriminating papers uh, as a favor to the kingpin, and then he he pulls a switcheroo so that. Uh, he controls the incriminating papers, but nobody else knows where they are. And then he offers to trade them for an affidavit that incriminates him and his partner's murder. And it's, it's very convoluted and difficult to follow, especially on a, on a first viewing. And I, I think that's, it, it's almost beside the point, mm-hmm. kind of the way it's beside the point to Jeff, like Jeff, It doesn't, you know, Jeff is kind of doing, making the good old college try to get out from under the, uh, the the weight of of the past that's that's coming down for him he 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 knows that he's trying to escape the hangman's noose but he's kind of just doing it to make a at least the experience of watching him do it it feels like he's just doing it almost for show like he's not just gonna lie down and let somebody pin uh, a murder on him he's not just going to be passive but he's not he knows that he's not coming out of this on the other end in a happy place and that what you know watching mitchum go through that i think he's ideally cast for this role because he does kind of give off that that sense of somebody who's just kind of he's just he's saying the lines he's doing what he has to do but he and the audience both know that this isn't going to end well for anyone and he leans into that as a performer. I think it's just, it's interesting to watch because you don't need to understand the ins and outs of the plots because the ins and, out of, the ins and outs of the plot are just, they're not relevant. What's relevant is Jeff's not going to make it. And we yep. all know it. And we have to, but we have to see it through just the way he does. And, and that's so
1: much of noir. It is It is full of these films where, you know, The Big Sleep, famously, even the screenwriter. Doesn't under doesn't understand who killed who in some places, Um, because it's all about the atmosphere. It's about the setting. It's about the the characters coming to this ending that undoes them. And you, you bring up the fact that, you know, the idea that maybe in this in these movies, there isn't a grace that exists. And how much of this is Jeff, you know, making the good old college try to get out of this, as you said, but understanding what he believes he deserves and Mm -hmm. you know when when he gets in that car and is dropped out at the house um of uh kirk douglas's character he knows that's a step that he's never going to come back to that small town he's never going to marry anne whether it's because he's going to die doing this or he's going to be punished because of his involvement in it and it's it's so bleak. It's, <laughs> it, it really is just so bleak. And I, I think if, if Mitchum played it as desperate and angry, it wouldn't have the power. But just the almost resignation he feels as he goes through the motions. I, at one point, he he just kind of remarks he knows he's being framed. He knows they've put his fingerprints on glasses. He knows he's being set up. And he he's rolling with it because that's the situation he that's the hand he's been dealt right and
0: it's the hand he's been dealt he's got to
1: play it yeah yeah no this is this is a great movie
0: oh i'm glad i'm glad you liked it and i'm i think i really enjoyed talking with you about it chris thanks for you know jumping on and doing that with me it's it's funny that you know for you know fast 10 talked about faith way more than out of the past does but i feel like out of the past makes you think about why you why you have faith uh, it, a lot more than than fast 10 does it's interesting how that happens
1: <laughs> it that that is very true and you know it, it comes down to that idea that I think verbally making a platitude about faith is not the same as burrowing in and dealing with the implications of a faith
0: mm. yeah good movie thanks for <laughs> thanks for watching out of the past with me. Ah, thanks for recommending it. Yeah, listeners, if, if you've had a chance to watch along with us, of course, we're interested in your thoughts. You can, of course, get in touch with us in all those ways that I mentioned earlier in the episode, but it's a movie that bears rewatching and bears a lot of talking and thinking about, so a great one for sure. Next week, we're going to be having Sarah back in the podcasting booth with me, and she's picked out a movie that I've been meaning to catch up with for a long time. I'm curious if you've if you've seen this one, uh, Chris. Have you seen Elaine Mays, Mikey and Nikki? I have not. Oh, okay. Well, um, I, I'd be interested if you get a chance to see it sometime soon, what you think about it. I'm going to be catching up with it for the first time, for next week's episode, we're going to be pairing that with the new Paul Schrader movie, The Master Gardener. So uh should be a, uh, an interesting conversation for sure. Um, but yeah, that's coming up next week. That'll do it for this week's episode. Chris, if any of our listeners wanted to uh, find you, read your writing online, uh, where could they go to do that? Yeah, I would say the best place to do that would be at my Substack, uh,
1: criticisms.substack.com. Um, I, I usually link to the reviews I do for Cinema Nerds, any podcast stuff I do. So that's probably the best place to find me is chrisasisms.substack.com.
0: Awesome. I'm, I'm a subscriber myself, listeners, and I can vouch for that newsletter. It's a good read for sure. Um, but that'll do it for this week's episode, Chris. Thanks again for coming on. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ in Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.